Today's scripture comes from Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because a widow keep bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Neitherless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find a face on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm sure you guys are surprised to hear the phrase, beat me down in the Holy Bible, right? And of all people being read by uh, Sonny, who happened to be uh, a mixed martial arts expert. So what a wonderful surprise that the Word of God gives us sometimes. Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really my privilege to share with you the Word of God this morning. Can we give God glory by first asking for His presence as we pray together? Let's pray that God would bless us as His servant preaches the Word today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that You are a God of faithfulness. Even amongst the people who are unfaithful, even amongst the people who forget, you never forget us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us now as we come to you weak and tired and torn after living in this world for the past six days. As we have tried to live faithfully, now, Father, we come to you hungry and thirsty, asking for your word to nourish us, to give us life, to be the drink of our soul so that we can go back out as your faithful ambassadors. Oh God, would you help us to not be distracted? Whatever thoughts, whatever anxieties, whatever fears the enemy tries to throw at us, oh God, whatever that our enemy tries to distract or dissuade us with today, Holy Spirit, would you silence it with your power so that we could fully receive everything that you want to give us in the preaching of your word today. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, it's been wisely said that hurt people hurt people. Let that sink in for just a moment. Hurt people hurt people. It's pretty profound, isn't it? And if it is true, and I believe it it is, then that also means abused people, abuse people. Bullied people, bully people. Cursed people, curse people out. Linger on that last one that I just gave you as I read to you the mission statement of our church. The mission of NCF is to bless the world through men and women who grow up in the gospel. Focus on that phrase for just a moment, bless the world. What does that assume about the world that we live in that we are trying to bless? Doesn't it assume that the world we're trying to bless isn't blessed, hence the need for God's people to bless it? And doesn't that further assume that this world, because it needs to be blessed, is living in a curse? Doesn't it assume that? Of course it does. Which is what? It means this, Christian. 
As you attempt to live in this world as a blessing, as you try to live out this mandate of being a blessing to others, as Christ has commissioned us, one of the things that you have to realize is that the world is going to react to your attempt to bless it with curses, with hatred, with rejection, to where they will do all kinds of evil against you. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ, the man who came to give the greatest blessing to the world, and look at how he ended up, right? Jesus calls us to bless the world, and yet he himself tells us that do not be surprised that when the world receives your blessing in return, they will be mean, vicious, cruel. Listen to what he says in John 15. A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Indeed, as followers of Jesus... Christian, you need to be prepared that as you attempt to be a blessing in this world, you need to be prepared that the world will react with rejection, with hardship, with humiliation, with misunderstanding to where they will do all kinds of evil against you. And the natural reaction that we can all have when we get this kind of treatment is what? We want to throw in the towel. We want to give up. We want to just say, you know what? I am done with living this Christian life And so we will be tempted to do what so many people do. Instead of adding blessings, we just recycle and add to the curses that's already spiraling around in the world. And the question that I want to ask you, Christian, is how do we make sure that we don't end up like that? Well, I believe our passage teaches us what we crucially need to do the most so that we don't end up recycling the curse, and that is being prayerful, specifically optimistically prayerful. And to help us understand what I mean by that, we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells us one of his most famous stories, a parable that all centers between a wicked judge and a poor widow. So three things I'd like to share with you this morning that all centers on this idea of being optimistically prayerful. Number one, the reason we need to be optimistically prayerful. Number two, the dynamics of being optimistically prayerful. And finally, the way to be optimistically prayerful. The reason why we need to be optimistically prayerful, the dynamics of it, and the way to do it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the reason we need to be optimistically prayerful. If you ever read the Bible, you'll discover that there are many reasons that it gives us as to why we should pray. Sometimes the Bible will say you need to pray as a way to adore God. Sometimes you need to pray as a way to confess your sins to God. Sometimes scripture will say you need to pray as a way to give thanks to God. Other times it will say, no, you need to pray as a way to ask things for God or to ask things for other people, to intercede on their behalf. But here in this passage, Jesus gives us another reason for prayer that many of us probably aren't even aware of. Listen again to what it says in verse 1. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Notice what Jesus says. He says one of the reasons why we need to pray is so that we don't, quote, unquote, lose heart. Lose heart. That's such an interesting phrase. Now, what in the world does it mean? Well, perhaps it may help if we read this verse in another English translation. And hey, why not? Why don't we read the very first English translation of the Bible, the King James Version? If you look in that version, there you will see Jesus not saying that we are to pray so that we don't lose heart. But instead, he'll say, hey, we are to pray so that we do not faint. Faint. According to Jesus, in the King James Version... The reason why we are to pray is so that we don't faint. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, well, that's kind of ridiculous. 
That's kind of a weird reason to pray because how many often of us ever struggle with chronic fainting? I'm sorry if you do, by the way, if you have a a condition or something, but that's not really a common occurrence for most of us, right? But, oh, you need to remember the King James Bible was written in the 1600s, and words today meant very different things back then, and the word faint back then literally meant to lose heart, to lose hope, to feel utterly, utterly helpless. In some instances, to, uh, to faint literally means to be a coward, to where you just want to run away and hide and avoid all those things that make you so paralyzingly afraid, so anxious. Now, when you understand that is what the King James writers meant when they, were, when they translated as faint, now you understand the reason behind why Jesus says what he does. And all of a sudden, this reason makes absolute sense, and it's very relevant to you, isn't it? Of course it is. Because as I just said in my introduction, we live in a curse-filled world to where many times, oftentimes, maybe all the time, we feel chronically under attack. To where we feel so terrified, so overwhelmed, to where we feel like we're always losing heart. To where we feel like we're so faint-hearted, right? To where the only thing that we want to think about is we just want to get out of this place. We want to be anywhere except where we are right now. Isn't it true that back in November... That when Trump won the presidential elections, <clears throat> excuse me, that apparently the Canada website for immigration crashed because so many people were so filled with dread, so filled with fear, so paralyzed with anxiety of what was to come. We are living in a day and age where more and more people are constantly feeling anxious, constantly feeling terrified, constantly worried about what is to come. Back in 2015, The Daily News reported of a study that was sent out by the New York City uh, State of Health, New York City uh, Department of Health, excuse me, and it turns out that one out of five New Yorkers struggle with some form of mental health disorder, ranging from mild depression, panic attacks, schizophrenia, bipolar uh, depression. That's 20% of the New York City population. That's higher than the national average, okay? In fact, this study was so alarming to the people who did it that one of them said the following, quote, major depressive disorder is the single greatest source of disability in New York City. Think about that for a moment. Out of all the disabilities that New Yorkers struggle with, major depressive disorder is the greatest disorder that New Yorkers are struggling with. And when you consider the coping mechanisms that people employ as a way to overcome it that are destructive, whether it's alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual promiscuity, things that harm themselves and those that they love, clearly this issue of losing heart, this issue of feeling helpless, this issue of struggling with depression and anxiety and helplessness, this is a major problem for us people who live and work in this city. And one of the biggest questions, if not the greatest question, that the mental health profession has been trying to figure out for years is, what is with this? Why is there so much gloom and doom amongst the people, not only in this city, but seemingly all over the world? Why are we so terrified? Many people have attempted to try and crack the answer, and many people have fallen short. However, it wasn't until a landmark study done about 30 years ago by Dr. Martin Seligman 
who is professor of psychology down at the University of Pennsylvania, where many are now saying that this guy actually figured it out. In his research, he wanted to figure out what is the common denominator? What is the fundamental root? What is the issue to which it manifests in bipolarism, anxiety, schizophrenia? What, what is the common core issue that makes people feel like they're faint-hearted and losing heart and cannot move on and cannot go on when it comes to life? He thinks he's discovered it. He refers to it as learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Listen to how Encyclopedia Britannica defines it. Quote, a mental state in which an organism forced to bear aversive stimuli or stimuli that are painful or otherwise unpleasant becomes unable or unwilling to avoid subsequent encounters with those stimuli, even if they are escapable, presumably because it has learned that it cannot control the situation. End quote. In other words... Learned helplessness, according to Dr. Seligman, is the mindset that you fall under when you are constantly being opposed by some force to where you feel like you cannot run away from it, you cannot fight it, you cannot overcome it, you just give up. And even though you're constantly getting attacked, you just say, I'm done. Keep hitting me, keep destroying me. That's all you do. You just lie there taking it. And according to Dr. Seligman, the reason why people fall into this paralyzing, fearful state of mind is because people do three things mentally. He calls it pervasiveness, permanence, and personalization. Listen to what he says in his book. Quote, people who suffer from learned helplessness do three things. They first think the causes of bad events in their lives are permanent, which he calls permanence, rather than temporary. So, for example, a person will say, diets never work, instead of saying, Diets don't work when you eat out. Secondly, they think that their problems are universal, pervasive, rather than specific. So a person will say, I'm so repulsive, instead of just saying, I'm just repulsive to that person. And thirdly, they think they are personally responsible for their problem, personalization, rather than recognizing it's the situation itself. So instead, they will say, I'm such a failure, rather than, that was just a difficult test, end quote. According to Seligman, a person feels utterly helpless when they feel that a bad situation that they're currently in is permanent. It will never get better. It is pervasive. They can never run away from it. And it's personal. They are responsible for it happening to them. And according to him, it is this state of mind, these three ways of thinking that lock together, that causes the various manifestations of helplessness, anxieties, phobias, fears, panic attacks. That is so pervasive in our city, in our culture, in our world today. Now you're thinking, what is up with this psychology lesson, Pastor John? What does, anything have, what does any of this have anything to do with our passage today? Well, let me tell you. Consider the story Jesus tells. The parable that all centers on a widow. If you knew anything about the culture back then, you would know that one of the most helpless people in Israelite society back then, maybe even the most helpless person in Israelite society back then, was a widow, especially a widow in the condition that Jesus is describing here. Listen to how one scholar by the name of Dr. Warren Wearsby is a Bible scholar. Listen to what he says in describing the widow situation. The widow had three obstacles to overcome. First, being a woman. She therefore had little standing before the law. In the Palestinian society of our Lord's day, women did not go to court. Since she was a widow, she had no husband to stand with her in court. Finally, She was poor and could not pay a bribe, the usual way to get a judge to hear your case, even if she wanted to. No wonder poor widows did not always get the protection the law was supposed to afford them, end quote. According to Dr. Wearsby, there are three obstacles that this widow had to face. She was a woman, she was a widow, 
and she was poor. Now, in our day and age, the unique challenges that are attached to being a woman and a widow, thankfully, are not as pervasive as it was back then. And of course, most of us in here are not poor, at least not according to world standards. And yet, if you carefully consider these three things that this woman had to face, this poor widow had to face, you come to the startling realization that these three things can correspond to the three mental states of mind of a person who has learned helplessness. For example, number one, she's a woman. She is living in a time where no matter what country she went to, what city she ran away to, she can never run away from the pervasive discrimination that all women in the ancient world had to face. She had to deal with pervasive discrimination against women. Number two, she was a widow. And there were challenges attached to being a widow, namely that your husband was permanently dead. And that there was no way that you can escape that permanent condition that caused this widow to have these challenges. And finally, number three, she was poor. She had no money. And one of the common misconceptions that Jewish theology had back then was, if you're poor, God is punishing you. That's why you're poor. And this woman could have easily internalized and taken the blame of her poverty to such a extent to where she would say, I'm personally responsible. I must have done something wrong to God to where he's punishing me like this. Clearly, this woman is a prime candidate of someone who would struggle with learned helplessness. And if it's true, thank you, brother. If it is true that learned helplessness is the underlying cause of pervasive depression, fears, and anxiety we all struggle with, what does that mean? It means that this widow represents you. She represents all of us who struggle with all this chronic anxiety, fear, phobias, anxiety, sense of helplessness. In other words, this woman represents all of us. She is the character Jesus wants us to identify with. She is the one that Jesus wants to pay attention to. And furthermore, she is the one that we are to imitate when it comes to our prayer life. What do I mean by that? To explain, let me go to my next point. The dynamics of being optimistically prayerful. I find it interesting that Jesus is trying to teach us about prayer through this character of the widow. And yet in this story, does she ever pray? (laughs) No. She never, why is Jesus trying to teach us about prayer through this character of a widow when she never actually prays in the story? Clearly, Jesus is not telling us that we are to pray like this widowed woman because she doesn't even pray in the story. What does it mean then? It means that we are to imitate her in some other way and then apply it to our prayer life, right? That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. So let's see if we can figure out what exactly we are to imitate about this widow. Starting in verse 2, let's read it again. Jesus, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Okay, so here's what's going on. This widow somehow, some way was wrong. Most commentators think that she was wrong financially. And so what does she do? She goes to a judge who, according to Jesus, neither feared God nor respected man. Now, that's simply Jesus' way of saying that this was a wicked, evil judge. And like most judges back then, he would only preside cases where the people involved would pay him bribes. And usually, always, really, he would always have the case win in the favor of the person who would give him the greatest bribe. And not to emphasize even greater difficulty, judges back then, 
they moved around throughout the city. There was no hall of justice. There wasn't a centralized location where there was the city courts. Judges back then went from city to city moving around, which means a person who needed to get immediate justice had to wait or struggle through or pay a lot of money to get that kind of immediate access they desperately need, which this poor widow did not have. And yet look at how this widow behaves. How is she behaving? Is she behaving like someone who has learned helplessness? Is she just giving up and just saying, oh, well, I guess I just have to suck it up? No. What does she do? She constantly, constantly pursues, constantly seeks out, constantly wants to get justice right away. In fact, it gets to a point to where even the judge gets overwhelmed. Listen to what he says, starting in verses 4 to 5. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, though she show that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This woman is not going to give up. She's gotten to a point where she is pestering, bothering the judge. Now, here's the question. If it is true that Jesus is saying that we need to imitate this widow, and if this widow is pestering the judge, and by the imitation that Jesus wants that we are to apply to our prayer life, is Jesus tacitly saying that's how we are to pray to God? Is that what Jesus is saying, that when you pray, you need to pester God, you need to bother him, you need to just constantly berate him with prayer after prayer. Lord, give me this, give me this, I need this, I need this, I need this, get it for me, get it for me. Is that what he's saying to where almost as if, God is saying that that's the only way he's going to answer your prayers to the point where you have to just tire him out, annoy the heck out of him, and just say, all right, enough, just here's what you want, get it, now leave me alone. Is that what Jesus is saying? If you read other teachings of Jesus when it comes to prayer, you know that can't be true. For example, Matthew 6, verse 7, he he says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Based on what Jesus says here, it's clear. Jesus can't be saying that you need to imitate the pestering nature of this widow to the judge. He's not saying that. And so the question is, what exactly about this widow are we to imitate? Well, Jesus actually teaches us what that is, starting in verse 7. Can we have the passage, please? Starting in verse 7, it says this. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man kinds, will he find faith on earth? Now, I'm not trying to draw your attention to any specific word in those two verses, but instead, I want to draw your attention to the grammatical tense of the words, the verbs especially. What tense are the verbs in? They're all in the future tense, right? You see the future tense word will over and over. Will not God, will he delay, he will give justice, will he find, over and over, Jesus is speaking in futuristic terms. He is thinking future-mindedly. Why? Let me ask you. When you're paralyzed with fear, when you're struggling with anxiety, when you're overwhelmed with sorrow and depression, the state of mind that you're in, are you dwelling on the past, are you focusing on the present, or are you obsessing about the future? Listen to this quote from Christian counselor, Dr. Ed Welch. He says this. There is a storyline to human life that includes a past, present, and future. Fear spans them all. Fear can be triggered by the past, react to crises in the present, and anticipate them in the future. Its preferred time zone, however, is the future. Dread, panic, nervousness, worry, and anxiety all speak of our potential future vulnerability. Worriers are visionaries without the optimism. 
An experienced warrior can go for days leapfrogging from past to future and back again, never landing in the present. What is he saying? He's saying this. People who have a learned helplessness state of mind, which is the same thing as having an anxious state of mind, are always envisioning a gloomy future. They're just so worried about what could possibly happen, what may happen, what is to come that they don't know, that they can't prepare for, that they cannot anticipate, to where they have no hope, no optimism when it comes to tomorrow or the day after or the week after or whenever. And if there is anyone in ancient Israelite society who would have such a gloomy vision, it should have been this widow. Yes, this widow should have been filled with such gloom for what tomorrow would come. And yet, does she act that way? Does she behave in a way as if her future is so uncertain to where it's nothing but gloom and darkness and fear and failure? Here is a woman who has a terrible past, a tragedy. Here is a woman who's in a present crisis right now. And yet, the way that she's acting is as if tomorrow is hopeful. Tomorrow is optimistic. Tomorrow is sunny days. Tomorrow... There is hope and joy to come. That is what's driving her to keep going. She is confident, even with all the things working against her, that this judge will have justice. She sees it. She smells it. She tastes it. Christian, this is what you are to imitate when it comes to this widow and how to apply it to your prayer life. When you pray, you are not to pray with a gloom, doom mindset or assumption. Instead, You need to have the hope and optimism of this widow when you pray to God. Amen? Amen. Haven't you noticed that when you pray, it's always in the future tense? You always pray for things to happen in the future. Even over things that happened long ago or something you're still struggling with now, all of your prayers are future-oriented, right? When was the last time you ever prayed for something in the past that you can't even change anymore? Never. You know, when I was in college, I received an email from this guy that we knew in our Christian fellowship, he sends out a massive email during finals, and he goes, guys, I need prayer. I just finished an exam, and I didn't know half the answers. I didn't study for it, but I'm praying in faith that I'm going to get an A. Please pray. Nobody responded. That's not how we pray. When there are things in our past that are still haunting us now, when there are still current struggles that we're in right now, We pray for these things to be resolved in the future. Why? Because the God who is in control of the future is telling us, trust me. Know that I love you. Know that I am with you. Prayer by nature is future-oriented to a God who is all-powerful. 